Section 37 of the Algonquin Legends of New England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Algonquin Legends of New England, or Myths and Folklore of the Micmac, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot Tribes, by Charles Godfrey Leland. Section 37. Tales of Magic. Mteulin, or Indian Magic. The study of magic, as it is believed in or understood by the Indians of America, is extremely interesting, for it involves that of all supernaturalism, or of all religion whatever. But if we, declining all question as to the origin of monotheism, limit ourselves definitely to what is known of shamanism alone, we shall still have before us an immense field for investigation. Shamanism is the belief that all the events and accidents of life are caused or influenced by spirits, and as fear of suffering is in all men, but particularly the savage, the strongest moral emotion, the natural consequence, is a greater fear of evil invisible beings. The result of it is a faith that everything which is obscure or invisible is supposed to be the work of mysterious agents, generally evil. Thus, all disease whatever, all suffering, pain, loss, or disaster, or bad weather, is at once attributed either to a spirit, or to some enemy who practices witchcraft. The shaman is the priest or doctor who professes to be able, by his counter-charms, to counteract or neutralize this devil's work. It will be long ere the scholar definitely determines whether shamanism as it now exists originated spontaneously in different countries where the same causes were to be found, or whether it is historical that is, derived from a single source. I believe that while darkness, hunger, fear, and similar causes could not fail to create a rude religion anywhere, as Moncure Conway has shown, yet that the derivation from one beginning, or at least later modifications from it, has been very great indeed. Investigation indicates that it was in Assyria, at a very remote age, that shamanism had, if not its origin, at least its fullest development. The reader who will consult Lenormant's work on Chaldean magic will learn from it that the fear of devils and the art of neutralizing their power were never carried to such an extent elsewhere as in the land of Bel. Now, as shamanism has at the present day its stronghold among the Turanian races of Central Asia, it may greatly strengthen the theory, somewhat doubted of late, of the early Akkadian predecessors of the Chaldeans and their Turanian origin, if we can only prove that their magical religion was the same as that of the Tartars. So far as my reading has aided me, I am inclined to believe that they are identical. Magic went so far among the former that, while they discovered natural remedies for natural ills, they never doubted that one was as much the result of sorcery as the other. This theory spread everywhere. Shamanism, or a vague fear of invisible evils and the sorcerer, may indeed have sprung up independently in Tartary, Central Africa, Finland, and North America. But it is almost incredible that the use of a drum inscribed with magical figures, the spirit flight of the angakok or shaman, and twenty other characteristics of the art should have become without transmission common to all these countries. Shamanism has probably been at the root of all religions. There was a great deal of it in all of those Semitic races. And, admitting this, it is not difficult to see 
how from Chaldea and Babylon it may have found its way into Africa, where black savages, who would have rejected a higher religion, would grasp greedily at what they sympathized with. The only real difference between the voodoo and powwow practices is that the former is, so to speak, the blacker and more revolting. This is because a low state of culture has induced the believers in it to retain more of the coarse witchcraft on which shamanism is based, or out of which it grew. For wherever shamanism exists there is to be found in company with it an older sorcery or witchcraft which it professes to despise, and against which it does battle. As the Catholic priest, by Bible incantations or scriptural magic, exercises devils and charms cattle or sore throats, disowning the darker magic of older days, so the shaman acts against the real wizard. Rink tells us that among the heathen Eskimo the shaman is sacred, and witchcraft a deadly crime, but that the latter is the secret survival of a more ancient religion. Voodoo, whether practiced as it is today in Philadelphia, New York, Havana, or Senegambia, deals with alleged devils, poisons, chicken bones, the ivory root, unnatural orgies, all, in short, that can startle and astonish ignorant natures. It is the combination of the oldest faith with its successor. Far higher forms are those of the magic of the black Takauri, whom one meets divining about the streets of Cairo, or of the Arab proper, which brings us fairly to the Kabbalah and the Jew, Cornelius Agrippa, and Eliphas Levi. It is not difficult to understand how shamanism, with its drums and darkened rooms, its conjuring of evildoers and extraction of diseases in tangible forms, should have spread from Central Asia to the Laplanders and Eskimo, and thence to the Red Indians. Very little attention has been paid to the intercourse actually existing at the present day between these races. I have met with a Passamaquoddy Indian who spoke French well, who had been educated at a mission school, and who had been among the Eskimo. As regards legends and folklore, no one can read the Eskimo tales and those of this volume and not feel that the Algonquin is to the man of the icy north what the gypsy is to the Hindu. As regards the early religion of both races, it is simply identical, and it is far too peculiar in its many similar details to have simply sprung up, as many might assume, from the common likeness in customs of all savages. For there is in both a great deal of literary culture, especially in the Algonquin, and it would be little less than miraculous that this too should have assimilated by chance. It does not help the opposition to point out that Algonquin legends declare that their ancestors came from the West. Even so they came from the Pacific coast, where Eskimo shamanism exists in its most decided forms. But, in any case, it cannot be denied that in the Red Indian mythology of New England and of Canada and New Brunswick we have a collection of vigorous, icy, powerful legends, like those of a strong northern race, while those of the middle continent, or Chippewa, are far feebler and gentler. Hiawatha Manabojo is to Glooskap as a flute to a war-trumpet. It is absurd to laugh at or pity the Indian for believing in his magic. Living as he does in the woods, becoming familiar with animals, and learning how much more intelligent and allied to man they are than civilized man supposes, he believes they have souls and were perhaps originally human. Balaam's ass spoke once for every Christian. Every animal spoke once for the Indian. If a child can be put to sleep by singing to it, why cannot insensibility to pain or a cure be caused by the same process? He is told that the wafer becomes the body of Christ. This may confirm his belief that the Indian god Manabojo turned bits of his own flesh or his wife's into raccoons for food.
if it is difficult for any educated or cultivated man to conceive how if any condition or phase of supernaturalism be admitted any other can be denied how can the indian be logically blamed for believing anything but the greatest cause of all for a faith in magic is one which the white man talks about without feeling and which the indian feels without talking about it i mean the poetry of nature with all its quaint and beautiful superstitions to every algonquin a rotten log by the road covered with moss suggests the wild legend of the log demon the indian corn and sweet flag in the swamp are the descendants of beautiful spirits who still live in them miko the squirrel has the power of becoming a giant monster flowers beasts trees have all loved and talked and sung and can even now do so should the magician only come to speak the spell and there are such magicians why should he doubt it if the squirrel once yielded to such a power in man it follows that some man may still have the power or that he himself may acquire it and how much of this feeling of the real poetry of nature does the white man or woman possess who pities the poor ignorant indian a few second-hand scraps of byron and tupper tennyson and longfellow the jingle of a few rhymes and a few similes and a little second-hand supernaturalism more accepted than felt and that derived from far foreign sources does not give the white man what the indian feels joe or noel or sabbatus may seem to the american philistine to be a ragged miserable ignorant indian but to the scholar he is by far the philistine superior in that which life is best worth living for the magic of the passamaquoddy and penobscot like the magician himself is called meteaulin mdeolin or mteolin it is the same effectively as da which is from the same root it is a power but opinions differ as to how it is acquired it is certain as i was told by an old passamaquoddy indian of sebaik near campobello that some children are born mteoulin they manifest it even while babes by being capricious eccentric and malicious others acquire the art as they grow older from all that i have heard i infer that mteoulin takes two forms one of witchcraft the other of magic the former is innate or may be acquired the latter for aught i know may be sometimes inborn but is generally acquired by fasting abstinence of other kinds and ceremonies the two are distinctly different rink found in greenland and labrador that the eskimo as i have said made this difference i will now give word for word the remarks of certain indians on this subject beginning with those of an intelligent and prosperous old man who was certainly enlightened and christianized very much beyond the average of his race i had asked him if there were any mteoulin or magicians living he replied there are many at st john and sebek are still mteoulin i saw this myself thirty-five years ago at st john's there was a deaf indian there the white men were abusing him they spat on him by and by a mteoulin from st john's came a man of thirty-five or forty i saw this the mteoulin asked them not to abuse the deaf and dumb indian they turned on the mteoulin then he screamed so horribly so awfully and looked so like a devil that the men were frightened they fell on their knees and could not move they let the man go this is precisely what is narrated by many writers of the shaman screaming and distorting of the features very few people know of what the human voice is capable it cannot only be trained to divine song but to such demoniacal howling as to deafen and appall even the guardians of a lunatic asylum 
In Lapland, Central Asia, or on Nootka Sound, the initiated are trained in remote solitudes to these utterances, to which no one can listen without terror. My informant continued, Two or three weeks after, I was in another place. We spoke of the Mteolan. The white folks ridiculed them. I said there was one in Fredericton, and I said I would bet ten dollars that he would get the better of them, and they bet that no Indian could do more than they could. So the Mteolan came, and first of all he screamed so that no one could move. It was dreadful. Then he took seven steps through the ground up to his ankles, just as if it had been light snow. When I asked for the ten dollars the white man paid, I gave it to the Mteolan. Among the Greenland Eskimo, the sorcerer, writes Rank, after meeting with Tomasuk, or guardian spirits, sometimes manifests it by his feet sinking into the rocky ground just as if in snow. He uses the very words of the Indian who described the same thing to me. And very recently in Philadelphia, in fact, while I was writing the preceding remarks, a spiritualist named Gordon performed the very same trick. Having been detected, a full account of the manner of action appeared in the press of that city. It was done by a peculiar method of stooping, and of concealing the stoop behind a skirt. It was a very odd coincidence that the explanation should thus present itself while I was seeking it. This shaman Eskimo trick was known to the Norsemen. In the saga of Thorstein, it is said that Ogantun, a noted sorcerer, when stabbed at, thrust himself down into the ground so that only the soles of his feet could be seen. And of Cole it was said that he could pass through the earth as well as walk upon it. Women are sometimes Mteulin. There is one at Psesuk, Bar Harbor, now, this summer. You have met her. She is Blank's wife. Footnote. I am acquainted with all the parties, but for obvious reasons suppress their names. End footnote. If you offend her, she can hurt you in strange ways. She is a good doctor. Once she cured a man. When he got well, he could not pay her for the medicine. His name is Louis Blank. She asked for her money. She asked many times. She could not get it. He was going to the woods far away to trap. He said he would pay her when he returned, but she wanted it then. She said, I will never forget this. I will be revenged. He went far up the St. John River with his traps. He set them in the stream for beaver. All that he caught that winter was sticks, and sometimes an eel. Then, at the end of the day, he would say to his man, It is of no use and then they could hear the witch laughing behind the bushes and tittering when he came home. So it went on long. Then he was sorry and said, I wish I had paid that woman what I owed her. And at once they heard a voice from the bushes or rocks say, Louis, that will do, it is enough. And the next day they caught two beaver, and every day two, and so on, till the season was over. This happened in 1872, in Miramichi Waters. There does not appear to be any single approved method of acquiring Mteulin. Some, as I have said, are born to it, but they appear to be wizards or witches. Others are formerly trained from boyhood by the experienced magicians. Others acquire certain gifts by certain ceremonies or penances. Of this kind was the power obtained in the manner narrated in the following story, which I heard from an old Passamaquoddy. There was once a young man who wished to become a very wise and brave warrior like his father. And his father said to him, I get all my luck of every kind from my dreams. You can have such dreams. Any man can if he will do a certain thing, but that thing is not easy for a young man like you. You must sleep seven nights with a virgin and never touch her. The young man thought this over days, 
and then asked his father how it could be arranged or managed. "'I will tell you,' replied the old man. "'Find a girl. The more beautiful she is, and the more you want her, the stronger the magic will be. Go to the parents for their daughter as a wife. Cheat them so. Before you marry, get seven bearskins, and let no man except one know anything about it. Make him clean them. One skin should be cleaned every twenty-four hours. Seven days must pass so. The young man was accepted by the parents. He sent the seven bearskins to the young woman. They were married. They went to their wigwam. He lay on the bearskins. He directed his wife to make another bed and sleep on it. They lay apart. The bride thought this was strange. She told her mother of it. The mother said, Never mind. By and by it will be all right. The wife thought it was all wrong. When seven nights had passed, the bridegroom disappeared. He was not seen in his village for twenty-five or thirty years. Then he returned to his father. He could divine all things by dreams. He had but to take the magic bearskin and sleep on it and dream. He could tell where to find good hunting or fishing. He foredreamed war with the Mohawks. Can any man do this? They say so. And I have known many who tried it in vain. They could not pass the trial successfully. There are stones in the forest with names on them. They give great power to dream. I have seen in my dreams the Umteulen of ancient times, the magicians, my father told me, of long ago. I have seen them diving under the waters from one island to another. I have seen them dive ten miles. When I was young, J. N., who was a great Umteulen, offered to teach me the art. I could have become one, but I would not. I did not think it was right. Once old J. N. and my grandfather hunted in the woods. It was near Katahdin, the great mountain. Footnote. Katahdin, like the Intervale near North Conway, is haunted and enchanted ground, abounding in fairies and other marvellous beings. But there is not a mile square of New England which has not its legends. End footnote. And they wanted everything. They had got out of everything. One night old N. said, I can bear this no longer. Would you like a nice pipe of tobacco? We have had nothing but meat for four weeks. So he went away for a short time, perhaps it was an hour. He returned with a box. There was in it three pounds of tobacco, there was cheese, rice, and sugar, there was fifty pounds of provision in all. This famous Mteulin was long a popular governor of the Passamaquoddies. I have a curious old brass candlestick, said to be one hundred and fifty years old, which he owned all his life. The following remarkable reminiscences of this very clever old sagamore were given me by Mary Sakyas, a Penobscot. The old governor was a great Mteulin. He had got it among the Chippewas. He said that it would come to pass that he would die before the next snowstorm. No, he did not care himself, but my husband's mother did when she heard this, and she cried. And then he said, Well, I will try to live, or else die in a month, but it will be a hard fight. So he made him a bow and strung it with his wife's hair. Footnote. In a Chippewa legend, a boy confers magic power on a bow by stringing it with his sister's hair. End footnote. And having done this, he shot an arrow through the smoke hole of his wigwam. Footnote. This is also mentioned in a legend where it is said that every arrow killed a supernatural enemy. End footnote. All this was at Nessaik, near Eastport. Then he said to his wife, Take one of your leggings and put it on my head. She did so. Then he took medicine. 
a rainbow appeared in the sky and a great horsefly came out of his mouth and then a large grasshopper he cried to his wife do not kill it and then came with a stone spearhead footnote this is all in detail perfectly shamanic the smell of the fresh fish after such a fight is the same in an eskimo legend the horsefly gan is lap End footnote. now said the governor this is all right so far but the great struggle is yet to come it is a wee wilmek who has done this you know what that is the passamaquoddies call it wee wilmek it is a worm an inch long which can make itself into a horrid monster as large as a deer yes and much larger it is mteulin yes it is a great magician i am going to fight it you must come with a small stick to hit it once and only a mere tap footnote in the legend of partridge a mere tap stuns the water fairy End footnote. but she would not go so he went and fought with the weewelmick he killed it it was a frightful battle when he returned he smelt like fresh fish his wife bade him go and wash himself but let him bathe as much as he could the smell remained for days the pond where he fought has been muddy and foul ever since the governor could with a gimlet bore a hole in any tree in the woods and draw from it as he pleased any kind of wine or other liquor once he was far in the forest with some white gentlemen he wished to entertain them he did this to their astonishment he produced tobacco in a miraculous manner when it was wanted then returning to eastport he went to mr pierce who kept a store and showed him that a certain amount of wine had disappeared from his barrels and paid him for it he never drank wine or spirits himself he once went hunting he took his wife with him she was enceinte it was in midwinter she had a great yearning for green corn he put a dish on the ground and there fell from above ears of fresh boiled green corn into it there said he as i promised you have it she had a silver cross and beads one day she lost it and grieved very much he said put that wooden dish upside down near the fire it was done and when she turned it up the crop was under the dish and he said the ketoks or spirits had brought it the following legend told me by toma josephs sets forth another manner by which mteulin may be acquired there were two indian families camped away at some distance from the main village in one lived a young man and every night he would go to the other wigwams to see some girls his mother warned him that he would come to harm for there was danger abroad but he never minded her now one night at the end of winter when the ground was bare of snow as he was walking along he heard something come after it had a very heavy steady tramp he stopped and saw a long figure white but without arms or legs it looked like a corpse rolled up he was horribly frightened but when it attacked him he grew angry the object though it had no arms fought madly it twined round him it struck itself against him and thrashed itself bending like a fish all about and he too fought as if he was crazy he was one of those whose blood and courage go up but never down he could die but never give in till dead before daylight the ghost suggested a rest or peace the indian would not hear of it but fought on the ghost began to implore mercy but the youth just then saw in the north kival lo keso the break of day then he knew that if he could but endure the battle a little longer he should indeed get a great victory then the ghost implored him saying let me go and whatever you may want you shall get and good luck all your life 
Yet for all this he would not yield, for he knew that by conquering he would win all the spirit had to give. And as the first sun-ray shone on him, he became insensible, and when he awoke it was as from a sleep. But by his side lay a large, old, decayed log covered with moss. He remembered that during the fight he had seemed once to plunge his fist by a violent blow completely into the enemy, up to his elbow, and there was a hole in it corresponding to this wound. He had torn away the other's scalp-lock, stripping the skin down to the waist. He found a long, hairy-looking piece of moss ripped from the end of the log to the middle. And all about lay pieces of moss and locks of his own hair, testifying to the fury of the fight. He was terribly bruised and torn, but that he did not heed, for now he was another man, and a terrible one. His mother said, I warned you of danger, but he had conquered the danger. He had all the strength of five strong men, and all the might and magic of the spirit. Yes, the spirit itself was now in him. After this he could do anything, and find game where no one else could. To conquer a ghost gives power. To conquer the dead, or to fight terrible spirits, to thereby absorb their power, and finally to keep them in a struggle until the day shines on them, is both Norse and Celtic, if not indeed world. But the grim spirit of this narrative is Norse. It is that of the hero, wresting from a corpse's hold, the sword of victory. Farewell, daughter, fleet give I thee, five men's bane, if thou it believe. But the great element or chief cause of magic power among the Indians is that of will. It manifests itself in many forms, mere courage being one. Thus the Wiwilmek confers supernatural ability or other favors only on those who are not afraid of it. The demon log, as we have just seen, gives strength and prosperity to a man for simply fighting like a bulldog. Beyond courage, pluck, or bottom, is with these Indians as nearly allied to magic as poetry was among the Greeks, or with an Eschenmeyer. When the true magician gets mad, and continues to get madder, till the end he is invincible. Allied to this is perseverance. The rabbit is rewarded with skill as an enchanter merely for continuing to try. His very failures have this in them, that he keeps on resolutely, though in a wrong road. No one can fail to be struck in these legends of the northeast Algonquins how often a boy or adult, when asked if he can do a difficult thing, replies, I can try. All of this apotheosis of pluck, perseverance, and patience is far more developed among these legends than in those of the Chippewas or other western and southern tribes, at least so far as I am familiar with them. It exists wherever there are red Indians, but the eastern Algonquin seems to have thought it out more, and made more of it than others have done. Therefore his cycle of myths, or his Edda, occupies a higher place. It is less chaotic, it is more consistent. It is a chorus in which every voice is trained to respond or to correspond with the leader. In this respect it has a remarkable resemblance to the Scandinavian myths and poems. In its theory that magic power may be obtained by penitence, I do not mean here repentance, that it is by self-inflicted pain, it agrees with the Hindu, and in fact more or less with all religions. But it is only, I believe, in the Red Indian and Hindu creeds that it is distinctly admitted that man can attain the power to do both good and evil, or whatever he pleases, if he will only pay for it by suffering. The doctrine of power through penance is so simple and obvious in its origin that it would long precede monotheism. A man exercises himself with great exertion in lifting stones, as in an Eskimo tale, till he is strong. He practices shooting arrows and running after them, as in the story of the chief's son, till he can outrun them. Then 
the secret of such marvellous deeds is supposed to exist in the bow, and it becomes a fetish. End of section 37